Hi, and welcome to the Let's Talk Healthy Pets podcast. I'm Dr. Karen Becker, Dr. Mercola's Chief Wellness Veterinary Consultant, and I'm excited to share with you the latest news about pet health to guide you in keeping your animal companions healthy, comfortable, and happy throughout their lives. My goal as a proactive vet is to empower pet owners to make knowledgeable decisions to extend the lifespan and well-being of their animals. If you're looking for more pet health tips, you can also subscribe to my free daily newsletter at healthypets.mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy today's podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and I'm so excited today to bring you an author, but also a professor, Dr. Fred Provenza, who has been at the Department of Natural Resources at University of uh, Utah State since 1982. Fred has written over 200 papers, and he has written this magnificent book, which is called Nourishment, What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Own Nutritional Wisdom. And it was through reading Fred's book, I didn't know actually who Dr. Provenza was, but after reading his book, I reached out to him and emailed him and said, I really want to talk to you about everything in this book. And Dr. Provenza, you graciously said yes. So welcome and thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, Karen. It's wonderful to be here with you. No kidding. I'm looking forward very much to this uh, conversation with you. So your book, one of the things I love about your book, Fred, is that it, it's, a, it's short essays combined with your personal thoughts, combined with your tremendous amount of professional wisdom, with a ton of references, research background, but it eloquently knits together this concept of how we raise our food and what food we feed to our food, and then what food we end up feeding to ourselves there's um, benefits and consequences the whole way up that food chain. And you've put this together so beautifully, not just for animals, but you link it back to our own health. So talk to me a little bit about, was this, is this book a, a culmination of all of your research or was it something from your heart that you decided you just needed to get out there? What, how did you decide to put your book together? It was both things. It was absolutely both things. Um, I wrote the first draft of the book actually in 1999. I was diagnosed with cancer and it was a time to stop and uh, wrote that. And then we had a 10 year program called Behave that was really about, you know, when I had cancer, we, the group that I worked most closely with and I started talking and thinking, you know, this could be the end. And we've done at that point about 25 years of research all in the scientific journals, but we all came from ranching or farming backgrounds. And we used to sit around and talk about, boy, this has so much implication, so much implication. But we were so busy doing research, we didn't get anything out. So we decided we're going to look for a big grant, and we're going to make that the total effort now is to get all this out to people. And so we created this program called Behave, that turned out to be the just a wonderful 10 years of... Um, not only outreach, but we put together an advisory board of initially 40 people, the most innovative people we could find from around the country, not only in research, but especially in practice, people who were doing really innovative work, managing landscapes, whether it's farms, ranches, natural resources in general. And that advisory board over the 10 years grew to about 250 people. So we, you know, we'd have this annual conference and more and more and more people came. But it was a beautiful integration then of, of research with practice, just back and forth and back and forth. 
So that was the last 10 years of, uh, at Utah State University. And then getting back more specifically to your question, um, you know, I left Utah State, Sue and I, my wife Sue and I moved to the backwoods of Colorado, We're in 12 miles in on graveled road, all alone in the backwoods. And it was just a wonderful time to stop and reflect. No more, and I loved work, so this isn't meant to sound, no more running, running, running just a time to sit back and reflect. And we were there living at 9,500 feet elevation in the transocean zone between the conifers and the aspens and this parkland, this beautiful, beautiful parkland, every kind of wild creature you could imagine from um, the dog types, coyotes, and we had wolves and wolf crosses up there. We had bobcats, lynx, mountain lions, black bears, um, pronghorn, deer, elk, and then this beautiful array of plants that I, I love so much. And so it was just a really neat time to stop and reflect. And also, um, you know, it's a shocker to me. I, I knew I needed to retire. I knew it was time to move on. I shouldn't say retire, but to move on. And I went from, you know, when you're in a program and actively involved, you're kind of the center of attention. And then you move to the backwoods and nobody knows who you are and couldn't care less. And that was really good, actually, because it just, you know, makes you stop and think during the day, just to kind of become childlike again. When I, when I was a young child, thinking about how I loved every wild creature and the plants and everything out there. Now, here I was again, being able to do that. And um, that's very long winded, but that's, you know, so the book was written in part to try to, talk about the science, but really to reflect a lot, to be reflective about just thinking about life and, and not in any way that's hopefully dogmatic, just kind of one individual trying to, you know, think about life. You know, I did, one of the neatest aspects about your book was that it was so, I learned so much about you. And, and even though I just met you 30 seconds ago, I feel like I know a large part of you <laughs> because you invested a lot of your personal stories and your ideas, not just as a researcher and as a, as an educator, but as a human that, as a naturalist. And as you're, as you are working through the issues of your own health and your own life. And I really appreciated that. You, you also, right from the book's foundation, you brought up this concept of what you have kind of been the forefather of, or at least a big participant of, of this behavior-based management of livestock, wildlife, uh, and, the, and landscapes, that you're looking at not just what animals eat and why, but the behavior that, that drives that. And I, I love that. So can you talk a little bit about that you, you blend behavior-based management with what you call the wisdom of the body or innate wisdom. Can you talk a little bit about when, do you remember when you first started recognizing, Fred, that animals had innate wisdom that we could learn a lot from? Were you a young boy when you first were able to knit that together? You know, when it really happened for me, so I spent seven years on a ranch when I was going to school at Utah State University in wildlife biology, and that combination was just fabulous to be able to be learning hands-on such tangible things on the ranch, working with um, sheep and cattle. We had some geese. We had some hogs. We had a few goats even. Um, so that personal experience was really, really amazing for me combined with the wildlife biology. Um, but 
when I really first started thinking a lot about nutritional wisdom was when I was a master's student. And uh, I was working with goats down in southern Utah. We were using them as mobile pruning machines to prune this shrub blackbrush. And, you know, as wildlife, being trained in wildlife biology, I really wanted to study goats. But I wanted to study mountain goats in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. The last thing that interested me at that point was to be studying domestic goats down on this monoculture of blackbrush. But I learned so much watching those goats every day with the goats. And two things really struck me. So one was that um, we were using them to prune the shrub during the winter and that stimulates new growth during the spring and summer. And these new trigs are way more nutritious than the old woody plants. They're higher in energy, higher in protein, higher in minerals, and we knew that. But um, when we started to watch the goat's behavior toward the new twigs, they didn't want to eat them at all. It was like, wow, this is amazing. What's, <laughs> what's going on? But I didn't think they were stupid. I just thought, well, why aren't they eating those? That was one thing down there that very first winter. The other thing was, um, in that part of the country, we were there were the blackbrush shrubs and then there was juniper trees scattered all about the place. And at the base of many of those trees were wood rat houses. Wood rats are these tiny little mammals that live there in the desert and they build these houses. And then they, <clears throat> for siding, they put juniper bark on the outside. Well, we had six different groups of goats and one of the groups, and this is what's amazing, only one ever did this, one of the groups started to eat those wood rat houses. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Blackbrush is terrible, but these wood rat houses look even worse. But what they would do is remove the bark from the outside of the houses and inside was densely packed vegetation. Then they have different rooms to their houses and one of the rooms was the bathroom basically, you know? So it was this vegetation covered in urine, which became this amazing non-protein nitrogen source. And I understood enough then to realize, wow. And so when we were weighing the goats, uh, as we went through the winter, those goats were performing better than the goats on the other five pastures that weren't eating the wood rat houses. And uh, so those two things really made me think, you know what, These, there's a lot going on here that nobody's ever studied. Nobody's, well, in fact, when they did study it, and this is not critique at all, I can understand how it happened. Um, they came to the conclusion that domestic animals no longer have nutritional wisdom. The assumption was that wildlife still had it because how else could they make a living and do what they needed to do to eat nourishing diets, to self-medicate, to, um, to reproduce. But the idea was that after 10,000 years of domestication, we had bred that out of them. So the only way they could, could get what they needed was for us to formulate rations for them. You know, and we've done that across, as you know, across the board for pets, as well as for all the domestic animals. Um, so it was interesting when I went back to Utah State after that winter, I was talking to some of the professors I knew, and I loved these professors actually. I was so thankful to be in grad school to actually get admitted and, and to be there. But when I would tell them, they'd say, well, I guess that just goes to show that Animals have lost the ability to, to eat nutritious diets, doesn't it? When I tell them about the new tweaks. 
And I thought, no, it doesn't. But I didn't know at that time how, um, how would you demonstrate that? How would you demonstrate beyond watching what those goats were doing with eating the old growth in preference to the new growth and eating the wood rack house? How would you demonstrate that? So that really launched a lifetime of thinking about that. And, you know, by the end, we had over 300 publications, actually, on all of these kind of topics. So, so we did a lot of work, you know. And I don't know if you want to go there or not, but let me just briefly say there were three elements as we studied over the years that really became the three legs to the stool of nutritional wisdom. And when I think about it now, if you break any one of those legs, nutritional wisdom can't be manifest. If you break all three of the legs like we've done in human societies for the most part, and then with, um, with domestic animals as well, there's no way that, that you'll see nutritional wisdom manifest. So the one part that it just blew my mind when we started to study this part, these biochemically, what else, this is a mouthful, but these biochemically mediated feedback relationships that involve cells and organ systems of the body, including, but not limited to the microbiome. People are so focused on the microbiome now. It's all the organ systems of the body feeding back to change liking for the food as a function of need, as a function of utility. And so, you know, you have these incredibly complex kind of interactions and relationships that are going on. But in the end, it boils down to, does it taste good or doesn't it taste good, you know? And I think that's what guides animals, just what tastes good now and uh, the flavor of the food and uh, as mediated by these incredibly complex relationships. Now, when I say biochemically mediated, you know, nutrients are certainly a part of that energy, protein, minerals, vitamins, and we've demonstrated that feedback-wise for all of those things in great, great detail. But there's also this vast array of what people refer to often as um, secondary compounds. I often say um, phytochemicals to include both the nutrients and these compounds. But there are these broad classes of compounds, um, phenolics, terpenes, alkaloids, and then there's tens of thousands of compounds within that. And a person need not get lost in the complexity of all that. I, I spent a lot of years working with natural products chemists going down one pipeline or another. But in the end, it's just, I think, enough to realize that both what we consider the nutrients and these secondary compounds both can play such vital roles in health. So, and we showed over and over again how relationships amongst these compounds, it's not just nutrients, it's not just the secondary compounds, it's the relationships among those. And depending on needs, animals will do, um, they'll, they'll really select across a broad range. You know, if they're sick and they learn to self-medicate on something, they'll do that. And we showed that they can do that under multiple states. Um, they can recognize different internal states of illness and self-select a medicine that rectifies that. So, so that was one part of the whole deal was these, to just explore these biochemically mediated flavor feedback relationships. Like I say, it's a mouthful, but, and when we first started to do that, honestly, to think that you put something directly into the gut or you infuse it into the circulatory system, and then that changes liking for the food that the animal has just eaten. That was mind twisting. It was just 
you know, it's like, wow, that is amazing because it, we're changing the liking for these foods as a function of what we put into their body and what nutritional state they're in. So that now it's just second nature to me. But I remember just being just being dumbfounded when, when we started doing some of those studies and seeing how you could just totally change liking for flavored straw, for instance, you know, you could put it in different flavors and depending on the feedback, they would either come to love it or to not like it. It was really mind twisting. So that was one part of the deal. And, and so, when, so when you say three legs, Fred, what, what are the, what's, the, what's the other leg then? It, it, okay, so yeah. that's the one leg. The second leg is the availability of alternatives. If animals don't have a wide array of alternatives available to them, there's no way any of this can happen. They really have to have these different alternatives. And that's where, and we both come from a similar background in this natural resource business. But, you know, from when I was a young undergrad, people talked about biodiversity. Biodiversity is important. And I understood it. I got the words. But as I've gone through the last 50 years since those days, 50 to 60 years, you know, I just, biodiversity is so important. It's the lifeblood, I think. And plant diversity, you know, now people are so interested in soil and for good reason. Without soil health, um, it's a mess. Without soils and soil health. But I try to remind people all the time, um, plants are what turn dirt into, into soil and soil into homes for herbivores, omnivores, and carnivores below and above ground. So without plants, it's just dirt, you know? <laughs> plants are what are really the key. And plant diversity is the key to making tons of homes below ground and above ground. And then when it comes to this whole business of being able to select, self-select diets that meet needs, diversity is what enables that. So that's the second, that's the second um, leg to the stool. The third leg for the animals that we studied, and many, I think, I think all creatures, is mother. Mother is a transgenerational link, you know, mother's knowledge. And that was so fun to study. The, and again, mind-boggling uh, to realize that mother becomes this transgenerational link. Mother links ancestors down through to the offspring, to the landscapes. You know, mother's knowledge of what and what not to eat, where and where not to go, what's a predator, what's not, her knowledge of that environment. And I think we, we talk so much about genetics, 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 and certainly that's genes are important. But what I think is so important to think about is genes are being expressed epigenetically in environments, and it starts in the womb. We did, we did you know, we're doing a lot of work with looking at mother's milk and mother as a model and just showing how important she is on food selection and habitat selection, where they go in these huge environments out west, they learn from, from mother. But then we started thinking, well, what about this whole nine months before they're ever even born? Then we started studying in utero kinds of influences and realized, oh my gosh, you know, the fetal taste system's fully functional during the last trimester of gestation. And these young ones are learning, starting to learn what's food, what's not for them. Um, you know, how calm mom is, uh, this whole myriad of things being influenced by mom. So those are three, the three legs. And I think when all those are really functional, 
you have um, what we see in wildlife populations, you know, these, this tight link to landscapes. So when we break any of those, um, then we're in trouble. And your, your thoughts on about how animals develop this nutritional memory, I think is, is one of the ways that you phrased it previously. Um, do you think that, do you think that that is, that that happens with domesticated animals as well? I think that, I think that that's a lot of people's disconnect is they believe that it does happen in wildlife, but maybe not domesticated uh, feed animals, livestock, and certainly not pets. But I guess I would, having uh, taken two zoopharmacognosy classes for dogs and cats, where we're allowing them to self-select nutrients, not medicine, but nutrients, even that is highly criticized because what people say is dogs and cats are too dumb. They don't know what they need. But I think that we could be short-sighted in assuming that they don't have the olfactory ignorance. And then, like you said, this, this palatability factor of being able to discern nutrient nutritional deficiencies. What are your thoughts on, the, on domesticated animals, both for pets and livestock, maintaining this fiber down through the generations that they still have this innate wisdom capable and available to them? Absolutely. I think they absolutely have that. And, you know, when we started the work, and your question makes me think of that, I think it was mainly assumed that it's just genetic. It's inherent. Animals inherently know what to do. Instinct. And I think the thing that our program showed so much is that all these things are being learned. And if you think of environments as ever-changing within the lifetime of the species um, or within the lifetime of the individual, and then you think about across the lifetime of a species, if they live several million years, tremendous, tremendous changes. You can't lock that into the genome. What you do is make, <clears throat> make animals able to to learn, that learning becomes very important for them, learning associations in the environment. And we just showed that over and over again. And then to support that, you have genes that are being expressed so that you can change organ size, organ function. We were showing how organ systems were changing, um, whether it was <clears throat> kidneys and kidney function or rumen and rumen function, liver, all these organ systems are changing as a function of what these animals experience. So absolutely that's still, that's still so um, built into the way that a body is. Then what we need to enable is simply them to be able to learn and to have that manifest. And then, um, you know, and then simply give them the choices. And uh, like I say, it involves um, choices and then, uh, mother is just so important in so, so many ways. Uh, I think um, when you have mother as a part of, of the whole system and rearing offspring and the offspring learning from mother, and then uh, we know that for the domestic animals, if they're allowed to go feral, they end up in extended families, which is very similar to bison, to elk, to met in the book, I, I reviewed a lot of the wildlife examples where, you know, that's just a natural form, these matrilenes where you have mother and her female, uh, you know, her offspring and grandma and great grandma and great, you know, that, these matrilineal groups. And then the young males are part of those groups early in, in their, their first few years. And then they break out of those groups and, and form their own groups. And uh, 
that still there's relationships. So that whole social organization and complexity is something that we, we've, uh, we've just gotten, uh, pretty much gotten rid of without thinking about, you know, and again, this is not critique. It's, it's just, um, though I'll have to say when I was on the ranch there with Henry DeLuca and you read in the book, I, I think the Henry and his wife were like parents to my wife and I uh, over the years and just learned so much from it. He had no, no formal education and just let you realize how important this experience that comes to your mind through your hands huh, from actually working and not to say that, you know, we both went to school and did, did a lot of that, but that observation and working out there on landscapes. And I had so many conversations with Henry, but I'll never forget one where I was talking to Henry about the fact that he always kept his own replacement heifers as a part of bringing those into his herd. And I asked him once after I'd taken a genetics class at uh, Colorado State University why he did that. Why didn't he bring in other breeds and so forth, crossbreed? And, and he told me so many fabulous stories of his experience when um, he had brought in animals unfamiliar with these huge landscapes where we used to run cattle and what a disaster it was. And here he had to move his whole herd to a totally unfamiliar environment, and he knew, he understood, and he summed it all up saying, well, they just don't know the range, and when I think of the work we did, it's like, well, we spent 45 years studying what it means for an animal to know the range, you know? Sure, sure. So, when it, switching topics to nutrition, um, you talk a lot in your book about how animals decipher what they need, and when they need it, and where to go to get it, and how that information how they acquire that information. But you also, the thing I love about your book, you start up talking about wild landscapes, wild animals, and then you talk a lot about our, our food supply and food production animals, but then also how that links back to humans. You mentioned a little bit about factory farmed cows and how factory farm meats all get kind of pre-formed, you call it all in one ground up food. But then of course, me as a small animal veterinarian, immediately went to, well, you know, we feed our dogs and cats nutritionally complete and balanced, all ground up food, where the ability to forage or select is completely removed from the animal. It's, this is your nutritionally complete and balanced food. We made it for you. We know what you need. And so you're going to eat it and you're going to be fine. That, that concept may work on paper, but in reality, it has not played out in such a beneficial fashion, or actually, let me rephrase that. You have found through your research that animals given choice diversity with some maternal wisdom being passed down actually unlocks a whole different level of health, well-being, and actually I would push longevity for all animals that you research when they had the ability to not have all-in-one food, but when they had the ability to discern what they wanted to eat and when. That's a big, big, big part of your research. Talk to me a little bit about all-in-one foods and your reservations around why mammals in general, probably all life, would not do best on an all-in-one food. Yeah, I have to say I love every word of what you're saying, Karen, on that. And, uh, you know, 
the further we went along, it became so obvious that no two individuals are alike. Every one of them is so uniquely different, even in the most uniform group we would ever be able to put together. And if you think from a human standpoint, each one of us can be identified by our fingerprint, a bloodhound could track us by our odors. We're each absolutely unique. Well, then you start to think about our organ systems and how they function are equally unique. And so when we would run uh, trials and give animals choices and then look at individuals, I'm thinking now of one study we ran with lambs. We had 24 lambs there and we were giving them just a simple choice between um, alfalfa pellets and rolled barley and just allowing them to, to self-select that. And you had everything from animals that just loved the barley and ate very little of the alfalfa pellets all the way across just nicely transitioning to ones that loved the alfalfa pellets and didn't want to eat much of the rolled barley. That's just two foods. That's a very, very simple um, kind of study. And we did that over several months. We were looking at weight gains and stuff and every animal's gaining just fine, you know, but they were doing it in their own way. Then we went on to do work with cattle where we were offering them either a total mixed ration, which you take, it would be like a dog ration probably, or a cat ration, where you take the ingredients and, you know, and I give credit to people who, in, who have studied nutrition of pets and farm animals. So I'm not meaning to discredit that in any way. I mean, tremendous amount has been learned. And when you study the history of that, it's amazing. So um, this isn't meant to discredit any of that, but when you, when you start to, so we had a nutritionist working with us on this study with cattle. And what we did was to feed them during the last two, three months of their life. And then we slaughtered them and we look at carcass characteristics. It was kind of a feedlots, quote feedlot study. One group was fed a total mixed ration formulated for the average individual in the group. So <clears throat> they'd taken four, four ingredients. Um, they blended those for the needs of the uh, average animal, ground them up, and then uh, you put it into a mixed ration and there's no choice there. You just, you eat that ration. The, so half of the animals got that. The other half of, half of the animals were simply allowed to self-select from the four ingredients that were in that ration, day to day, whatever they wanted to eat. And uh, it was amazing to see by the end of the trial, um, several things had become really obvious. One is that the animals that were given a choice, no two animals ever selected the same combination and no individual ever selected the same food from day to day. They would very, very, very it was like a mess trying to, to look at it, but, um, when we did their weights and condition and slaughtered them, they were all, they all finished in fine, fine condition. It wasn't that the ones choosing their own ration weren't doing a good job, they were. But what was amazing, they were eating less food than the ones on the total mixed ration. They were able to better meet their needs. They weren't having to over ingest to get nutrients. We were thinking it may have been related to protein. There's some evidence that can happen where animals will over ingest energy in order to meet needs for protein if that's less than what they need. Whatever it was, 
the bottom line was the animals given a choice ate far less food, so that means it cost us less to feed that group of animals than the other group. So there was an efficiency there that um, came as a result of simply allowing those animals to self-select. And we did studies uh, like the ones I mentioned with, with the lambs and many, many studies with sheep and cattle both looking at that and it just became it it's like became so apparent that when we try to make everything so machine like animals aren't machines and genes aren't destiny everyone is different and when you allow that to be expressed there can even be an economic benefit and certainly i think a benefit to to each individual just in its own well-being one of my colleagues um that became such close friends, worked many, many years together. He's still at Utah State, Juan Vialba. He's been getting into stress levels and cortisol levels when animals are given choice versus no course. It's stressful to not be able to have, to self, it may seem nuts, but it is. That when animals can self-select their own diet, there's less stress for them. Well, and of uh, to me, that just seems common sense that of course they need to be able to self-select because they need to be able to meet their own unique physiologic needs which is not going to be the same as the animal next door to them and when they are able to nourish their bodies in a way that resonates with whatever's going on then of course they're going to be you're going to produce less cortisol but you're also going to feel better in theory be more resistant to disease and and pathogens and all of those things i'm weirdly jealous that all of this amazing research is done on production animal medicine because you can, you know, we don't, we don't do a, a research project on dogs and cats and then sacrifice them. Uh, and we also don't eat dogs and cats in this country. So we're not looking at them from, uh, from a energy standpoint in terms of how nutritious can they be. So much of the nutrition research, like all, all of your amazing studies that you've done on livestock, we really need to be doing on our dogs and cats and even ourselves as humans. You know, you allude a lot in your book about how fat, the fast food industry, this nutritional sameness that is occurring with factory farm cows and dogs and cats is actually, you talk quite a bit in your book about how we have been, our taste buds have been, because we have nutritional sameness with much of our human fast food, humans have fallen under you know, the idea that we're over consuming a tremendous amount of food in desperation to get a few nutrients that we need. And in the meantime, we're becoming undernourished and obese, chasing nutritional deficiencies because of our mass produced pelleted foods, you know, fast food. So you, and so you relate that back to humans, which I love in the book. Um, and so, what do you think, just one last question before I get on to your, my, my question about your future dog, what are your thoughts about humans? Because I think that a lot of people that even has, have accepted that, okay, I get maybe even dogs and cats, after all, dogs still lick their butts and they'll eat poo when they need to. And so animals are definitely different in the sense that they will select different foods that we consider disgusting. Domesticated animals all still do that. People may have cravings for foods. My dad uh, talks to me a lot. He grew up very, very poor in Iowa and he remembers craving chalk and limestone. He would go and dig and he would want to eat limestone. He was nutritionally deficient. Most people don't publicly announce those things. Uh, so if people do have cravings, we oftentimes don't even have healthy foods to satisfy our own nutritional deficits. But do you believe, Fred, that humans are still innately wired to crave foods that we need to nourish our bodies? Maybe if, even if we don't have the resources we need to nourish ourselves well, those cravings are still there for a reason? 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely believe that. And, uh, you know, some of the, there's two sort of, two literatures that I think are really great on that. One's the anthropological literature where you just get in there and look at what did people do when they were experiencing scurvy or rickets or whatever. And they did what they, they did the right things. They, they, when they got the foods that were necessary, they did that. Clara Davis's study with the, with the kids in the orphanages, um, was an amazing, amazing six years. She allowed those children to self-select from 34 different foods. And um, from when they were first brought into the orphanage as babies. And they absolutely did what they needed to do throughout that six year studies, pediatricians following them and uh, saying they'd never seen, I read the publications, never seen healthier babies. So, and I've had uh, over the course of the book and, and then, you know, the, the career, different people have said, you know, we just allow our baby to do that. We just, we offer them the choices and we let them. The key then I think is like Claire did, make sure they're wholesome foods for us, whether they're adults or, you know, so that means however you do it, whether it's growing your own vegetables and fruits and even your own animals or sourcing them locally, but getting, getting away from all the processed foods and just eating wholesome fruits and vegetables and meats and fish, whatever. And then just, just watching what your body does. I, that's what I do. I don't even, and sometimes it just seems so strange. Well, I'm really, this sounds really good. And, uh, and I believe that's the body just, you know, some organ system, maybe my lungs need some certain thing or my brain or, you know, and it does tie back to organ systems. It really, there's not time maybe to go into all that, but it does tie back to different organ systems. And then for me, I just relax into that and think, you know, that's just, that's just what, what's being manifest now. And the same with, I think with medicines, it gets that's where we, we've really broken the linkages, how huh? we've broken the linkages to landscapes. And I, I talk about that in the book, how what if you were, I have a friend in, in uh, Japan who's, he, he's a world expert and, and really well known. Mike Huffman's his name from Boulder originally, but has lived his life in Japan and on self-medication in animals. He's the guru. He's the go-to guy. Studied it in primates his whole life. We correspond on a regular basis, but and I, I talked to Mike, what, what if you were born and raised, and that was a part of your tradition, knowing how to use these different kind of plants and things for your own health, that would be a whole other repertoire. And again, I'm not uh, putting off allopathic medicine. I wouldn't even be alive without that. So there's sometimes, you know, I mean, but what if it was broadened out? What if it was broadened out? So we were mainly relying on that prophylactically for our health and at times therapeutically and then if we needed really the big guns um yes we've got that you know so it's not like throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we did throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to um to our use of of plants in in uh and their their roles not only in in vegetables and the value they can bring with all these secondary compounds, but also prophylactically in our health, fruits and vegetables. I'm a real believer in that. And in the book, you remember I mentioned when animals are given choices, they'll eat 50, 75 foods in a day. It's mind-boggling just to follow them around and look, they take a mighty. 
And three to five will make up the bulk of the diet. And I, we focused always in the past for many good reasons on that, those three to five for the nutrition of the animals, for the health of landscapes and what that means. But when I think now that other <clears throat> 50, 60, whatever it is, plants that they're taking bites of here and there, I just think probably prophylactically that's so important because it's getting these this vast array of compounds in low dosages into the into the body and i realize not everything is digested absorbed but a lot of them are and then that gets them into the capillaries where a cell can forage you know that's how i think of it as these cells are foraging and they can only forage on what's in those capillaries and you know some of those 50 compounds that animals are taking one nibble of in large quantities are actually fairly toxic. I mean, they can do damage in large right. quantities. And this is the, you know, this is where animals have this innate wisdom that I need a bite of this, maybe to deworm from a roundworm, maybe for, like you said, maybe to clear something, maybe to get gall bile moving from the gallbladder. But they have one bite, but they took that bite for a necessary reason. Yeah, yeah. It, it's pretty amazing to think of that and to think, you know, and variety certainly, uh, and there's, that is something that's been studied in the human literature quite a lot, the importance of variety. And that's often the default that people will say, well, the way that humans are able to meet their nutritional needs is simply eating a variety of foods. And there's, that's a valid point, you know, just eat a variety of different things. And there's this notion of sensory specific satiety where we get tired of, you know, we'll shift from food to food within a meal and across meals. That's valid as can be, and I know that works with the domestic animals from studies that we've done. But then you tie in that there is this deeper wisdom that's resonating in there as well, and I think you really get, get a, a complete package of how this works. So now my most burning question. You mentioned <laughs> that you were in the process of aligning the being of a brand new baby, uh, a new Labrador or a new dog, uh, mm -hmm. a new puppy is going to be arriving in your home in the coming months. Fred, with all that you have learned, with all of your research, with all that, with, with all that you've been able to knit together thus far, how are you going to nourish your puppy? You know, th that's a perfect question, Karen. And I, of course, knew you were going to go in that direction. Um, <laughs> And I, I really, when I think of that question, and my, my wife and our daughter who lives in Los Angeles, and her, she's not working right now, so she decided to come and, sp and spend time with us, which is wonderful. But that conversation came up right around the dinner table the other day, and how we used to do it, where we would go buy the most expensive food we could buy and, and give that, and we didn't want dogs eating off the table and all that kind of stuff. Um, we actually shifted from our first dogs way back where we did feed them everything. <laughs> then we went more to this other way. And now for certain, I would, we're going to give them choices. You know, we're going to train them well from the beginning. You don't eat off of the table and stuff. This last lab we had was a huge black lab, 120 pounds. So he could, he could literally, and I remember one time he did this early on in his career in our house. He simply reached up and grabbed a chicken carcass right off the table and took off. Well, Sue was Sue ended that right. You know that was the last time that. And, yes. But we're we're simply going to train them. But we're going to give them choices. You know, and we 
we've loved having black labs over the years. We've always grown huge gardens. We've always had, when we were living in Utah, raised our own lambs and, and steer and so forth. But watching those dogs in the garden was a delight because they loved eating everything that was out there in those gardens, from the peas to the raspberries to the, you name it, to the corn. They loved the corn. And I used to laugh so much when we were living in Utah. I could grow watermelons and cantaloupes. And that was kind of my little thing. I used to like to grow those and, and pumpkins. And Sue took care. We worked together in the gardens. But that was and seeing the dogs just go out there and grab a cantaloupe and come eat it on the lawn. So good. You know, so they eat a variety of, you know, they, they, they are meat eaters, but they're kind of um, they're, they're omnivores, huh? Absolutely. They're really Absolutely they are. Yep, they are. We, I, a lot of people will call them facultative carnivores or scavenging omnivores or omnivorous carnivores. Of course, of course, you know, if there's, if, if there's a steak out there, your dogs will eat that, but they eat plenty of veggies and fruits and roughage in the wild. All. And even the feline species do as well. People say they're strict carnivores. They are, but they still nibble grasses. You know, all of these categories of omnivores, vegan, vegetarian, in nature, there are not hard lines. And so even our most carnivorous mammals consume strikingly, at some points in there, depending on season of variability and, and also climactic changes, they eat a lot of roughage or vegetation. Same with dogs. Dogs that eat a tremendous amount of fruits and vegetables in the wild, and people forget that. I love it as one natural resource graduate to a professor in that i i love it because you're one of my few guests i don't have to convince that 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 point is true <laughs> oh no i it's it's wonderful what you're saying Karen. it's just absolutely the case and uh those lines aren't distinct they aren't black and white that <clears throat> did um dogs eat meat goats eat plants and so forth you know I, as you read in the book, many stories about carnivorous herbivores, huh? That yeah. they'll, they'll eat rabbits, they'll eat, they'll lick urine patches, they'll eat eggs, they'll eat, you know, and all that's, that's need being manifest. And I think when we allow the, the pets to have um, choices, uh, not only for, of meat, but of vegetables as well, you're going to end up with healthier animals, really, because those, those plants provide some, you know, they can, they can give some really interesting boosts in terms of biochemicals that, that um, animals may not be able to get so well for, from just meat alone. So there, there's such good reason to, to do that, you know, to, to give them a choice. And I think back to what you said earlier too, how interesting would it be to do research along those lines and just look at how content they are, look at cortisol levels, look at how how healthy they are, longevity, all those things. And then go back just to that fundamental idea, no two of them is alike, you know? So um, giving them choice and ability to choose is, is uh, good for them. Well, let me tell you, Dr. Provenza, I am excited to check back in in 5, 10, 15, and 20 years when you will have the oldest, most grounded, healthiest black lab in the nation. That's what I think is gonna happen. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to having a lab again. That, 
Nothing like companion animals, huh? And yeah, it's true. Listen, your wisdom professionally manifested in this fantastic book, but it has been a real joy to be able to interview you about your thoughts pertaining to why you wrote the book, but also to help extend this concept of One Health that your professional expertise is in wildlife landscape management, wildlife management, and then ecosystems behavior, which is beautiful. But that ties back into our own wellness, our own behavior, our own ability to nourish ourselves healthfully and, and in a way that aligns with um, respecting the earth and what becomes our food matters. And you've penned that so eloquently in your book that it's been a joy to be able to touch base with you about how it pertains to us and our companion animals. So thank you so much, Fred. Yeah, Karen, wonderful to be here with you as well. Uh, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, no question about it. Thank you very much for the opportunity.